Well, good morning. Good morning. Glad to have all y'all here. If you would, stand with me um, as we read God's Word. We're going to be starting in Isaiah chapter 8, 21, and we'll go through 9, 7. It's on the screen on page 371 in the Bibles that are close to your seat. Let's start off and read. It says this. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And as they look upward, will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness and gloom and affliction. And they will be driven into thick darkness. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former time. When he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali but in the future he will bring honor to the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations the people walking in darkness have seen a great light a light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy the people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders, the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. For a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us and the government will be on his shoulders. He will be named. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you promised to set things right, and you don't put that weight on our shoulders. You carry it on your own, Father. I pray that we would be filled with the hope that comes from this, Father. Lord, would you give us faith to listen to you more than we uh, gain our disposition from the things that we see all around us, Father. Make us what we're not, people of faith, that trust your words more than we trust our eyes. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. There's nothing worse than the feeling that you get when you look for something and you can't find it. We all know how that feels, right? To be waiting on an important call and your phone is on vibrate and you can't find it. Waiting to get to a meeting and You can't find your keys. Last night, me and Richard and LB drove um, through the cold and the snow to go and pick up some food. And halfway there, we realized that none of us had wallets. Um, Bad on a bunch of fronts. One, we wouldn't have uh, been able to buy our food. And two, we were three black men in a van with no identification. There's nothing worse than trying to 
look for something and realize that you can't find it. I feel like this season really brings that out more than any, any, anything else because what we find is that in Christmas time, when there's all this snow and um, all this hope of uh, what life should be, we know that we're supposed to be full of joy. Um, and we look for that joy, we look for a sense of happiness, but there's nothing worse than trying to look for something and not being able to find it. We're supposed to be happy, but the truth is often that we're not, especially as we think of the year that we live in. Um, 2017 has been a very hard year to stomach. I'm just going to go down a list of things here that threaten our joy in a season where we should be filled with it. One, think of all the natural disasters that took place here in this world. The fires that Tripp prayed for, the hurricanes that we've talked about that have ravaged everything. What, what hope do we have for next year that things won't be the same, right? With things like that, it's not like there's anything more that you and I can do to fix it. It's just things that are. We have no hope and no control that next year won't be, be filled with more of those things. Think of the gov of, of government that we have right now, or just that we've had. For as long as we've been around as a nation, there's not been a shortage of people protesting, trying to change things. And for as far as we come, there's still so much for us to lament. Think of all the sexual allegations that have come out in the, the news, where every day we wake up and it's like there's somebody else. And as I sit back and think of, you know, the joy that we have on Tuesday. My wife and I get to go to court and finalize the adoption of our daughter. And while that should cause us joy, I wake up and I think every morning about how frightening it is to have to raise a daughter in the world that we live in. We look at the world, and it seems like there's reasons that we shouldn't have hope. And not just the world, we look at our world. As a pastor, as I think of all of what's going on in the life of our church, the miscarriages, the family members that have died, the marriages that are in trouble, the friendships that have ended, it seems like that there's so much in our world, and we're supposed to look for hope, we're supposed to find joy, and it seems like that the more that we look for hope, that it's not even like you and I are trying to find resolutions to all of these things. We're just trying to find a sense of hope that the feeling that we have right now is not going to last. And it seems like the more that we look for hope, the more that we find more reasons to be hopeless. We're joyless. We, we feel that we should have joy in this sense of time or in this time, but we don't feel it. When we find ourselves sad or frustrated or trying to look for hope, uh, the more that we look around us, do you know what it often does? Uh, the more that it leads us to start to envy what people have because we think that they have what we really hope to have. It's funny how uh, people can have the same stuff as you, but when they have it, it looks better than yours. 
me and Sandy were leading a small group this past week, and um, she had on the same watch that I did, and, you know, it was shining real bright, and I looked at her, and I'm like, oh, you got the new joint, right? Yours is bright, and she, she's like, no, I got the same one as you do. It's easy to look and to think that marriages, that somebody else has a better one than I do, kids that they have better ones than I do, friendships that they have better ones than I do. When we look to this world for our hope, it's easy for us to think that somebody else has more than we do. And as we search for hope and don't find it, uh, we quickly start to see that um, tragedy has never been the end of anybody. Communities don't crumble under the weight of tragedy. Communities and people crumble under the weight of hopelessness in the midst of that tragedy. So where we go to hope, if we're really going to find it, it's actually a big deal. And I'm grateful because in God's word, we see that there's a community of folks that have dealt with the same things that you and I face. And God tells them where they can go to get hope, how they can get hope. If you're here in this room and you feel like I'm, I'm hopeless, I'm frustrated, I just don't know what my life has for me, I want you to know that God has already talked to a community of folks that have been there and his words have been preserved for us. So if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter 9, you should already be there. Let me set a little bit of context for us as we go. Isaiah... Uh, that name means Yahweh is salvation or God saves. So the message of this whole book is that God saves. That although God speaks a, a word of judgment and his words are final, judgment is not God's final word to us. God speaks a word of salvation and hope. And so what we find here in the book of Isaiah, specifically the ninth chapter, is we have a group of folks who find themselves in a place where they're being judged, not just for their sins, but for the sins of their ancestors. There's a nation, Assyria, that's getting ready to come in and conquer them. And they find themselves in a place where they're fearful, they're frightened. As they think back on their past year, they're just like us, looking for hope. And God is going to be very, very clear on where it is that they are to find hope and where they're not to find hope where they should look for it, and where they shouldn't. Uh, look here with me in verse uh, 19, just to set a little bit of context. As God is telling this group of folks to listen to his word, he's rebuking people that spend their time trying to look for hope elsewhere. Look specifically what he draws out. He says this. When they say to you, or everybody else that tries to tell you where to, to find hope, when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the spiritists who chirp and mutter. This is what you should say back. Shouldn't the people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Go to God's instruction and testimony. If they do not speak according to his word, there will be no dawn for them. Basically, there's a group of folks, and as they're struggling with trying to find hope in the world that they live in right now, they're consulting spiritists or mediums, folks at this time that would claim to conjure up the wisdom of dead men to explain what we should do right now. And so what God says to this group is this. 
if, if God was, was trying to speak to us, this is what he would say. I know that there's a lot in this world to be fearful of. I know there's a lot to be frustrated with. But why are you going to the dead on behalf of what goes on in your, uh, your world? Instead of spending all of your time reading books by dead men, which could have value, why don't you open up the Bible? God is telling this group of people that if you're trying to find hope, look in God's word, it's right here. That's why we spend our time week in and week out speaking from this ancient book because God is someone that can't lie, that has spoken, and all of his words are good. He directs us where it is that we should go for hope. We're not hopeless. So he starts off, read with me in verse 21. The bulk of what we're going to talk through is Isaiah's message in the ninth chapter. But if you look at chapter 9, verse 1, you'll see that it starts off with a word. And that one word is nevertheless. And what that word is, it's a thing that's called a coordinating conjunction. And all that means is that it's a word that's used to connect this section of what comes before. So if you don't know what comes before, then you're not going to appreciate all the stuff that comes after. And so what comes before is this group of folks that Isaiah brings up that's spending all of their time trying to find hope here on this earth. And he's just going to paint a picture of what goes on with everybody that spends all of their time trying to find hope merely in the realm of the things that they can see. And he starts off and he says this. 21. They will wander through the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged and looking upward will curse their king and their God. They will look toward the earth and see only distress, darkness, and the gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into thick darkness. This is a people that are dejected, hungry, and famished. They are actually in need of hope. This is a group of folks that are actually trying to find hope. These are not people that are sitting passively by just waiting on hope to come down. It says here that they're actually trying to find hope. But their problem is they're searching for it horizontally. And here's where things fall apart. That when we look for hope in the wrong place, we're not going to find hope. We're only going to find more reasons to be depressed. So a search for hope is a very good thing. Unless you look for hope in the wrong place, then it turns out to be a very, very bad thing. Because all you're going to see in front of you are reasons to complain. November 20th, 117 years ago, a pastor by the name of Francis Grimke started to preach a series of sermons on waiting on God. Francis Grimke was a man that was half black and half white, born in 1850. So he lived through the Emancipation Proclamation in 1878 started to pastor a church in D.C. for 50 years, helped to found the NAACP. So this is a pastor, an activist, leader, and he starts to preach on what it means to wait on God, and he tells his church this, I'm no pessimist. 
As terrible as things are out there, as insurmountable as the obstacles may be, I'm hopeful. And here's the ground of my hope. And he says, but before I get to the ground of my hope, in passing, I just want you all to know what we shouldn't put our hope in. This is a guy speaking 117 years ago. And he lists these five things. One, the government. We shouldn't put our hope in them. Because although they have the power to change, they don't have the disposition to. We shouldn't put our hope in the press, media. Why? Because what he says on November 20th, 1900, is that bad news sells. So what takes place is people that do good things, they get pushed to the back page of of a local newspaper. People that do bad things are front page, front and center. Then he goes on and says this, we shouldn't, uh, at the time he said, uh, we shouldn't even put our hope in most of the pulpits in the United States. Because what he said is there's so much silence in the the pulpit. And he said whether it was a lack of courage or ignorance or indifference, he saw there was a hypocrisy there. People didn't want to talk about race stuff for the sins that they really dealt with, but they were bold to talk about polygamy in Utah, gambling, uh, prohibition, foreigners that were a long way away. Fourthly, he said, we shouldn't put our trust or our hope in political parties because he said both of them are just going to use us and once our usefulness is gone so will any legislation to help things get better and then lastly he says this we shouldn't put our hope in force or our fists why because we're outmanned and we'll get slaughtered um he started to preach on this hope And in passing, as he wanted to take some time and just briefly mention and examine where we shouldn't look to for hope, he ended up preaching three sermons. The first two were all on the hopelessness of all of these things. He started to examine the hopelessness that exists in the world, and it took him three weeks to get to the good news because the first two sermons were just filled with, as soon as you start to look to this hope, this world for hope, you start to find out that it falls short. And I want you to know, for all of us in here, that may feel as if, all right, my hope really lies in something that I see getting better. Uh, If you look to this world for hope, it doesn't just affect how you view this world. It affects how you view the very one who created this world. Look here at verse 21. They will wander the land, dejected and hungry. When they are famished, they will become enraged. And looking upward, they will curse their God and their king. Everybody that looks to the earth for satisfaction looks to heaven with disgust.
Because what you quickly find out is that all the complaints that we make about life, I'm frustrated that life didn't turn out the way that I wanted to. I'm frustrated at the lot that I have in life. I'm frustrated how I just can't seem to get ahead in life. All of those are theological statements. You replace life with God and you find out what your heart really feels. I'm frustrated not just at the lot that I have in life, but what you quickly find out is I'm frustrated at the lot that God gave me. Complaining. If you and I find you, if you find yourself in a place where you're constantly complaining about things that go on in this uh, world, complaining is a great diagnostic tool that you're looking for satisfaction or fulfillment or joy in something that you can see in something in this world. And if you're a career complainer, you're never going to be without a job because there's always going to be something to complain about. Complain about your spouse or your job or your kids or the place you stay or your marriage or your church. And what you'll quickly find out in a world that's broken, there's something wrong with everything. And I want you to know this. Nobody has ever complained their way into contentment. It just doesn't work like that. As much as we would like to believe it, it doesn't work like that. Here's a little bit of worse news, though, if you felt like that wasn't bad enough. Here's a little bit of worse news. Um, this is more than just don't complain, look on the bright side of things. Um, sometimes there really is no bright side of things. When Isaiah talks about where they are, uh, notice how in chapter 9, he starts to use poetic language to capture where they are because the cold and sterile factual adjectives just won't do. Look here at verse 1. He, he talks about that they're in this gloom. Verse 2, he goes from there walking in darkness to where they live in it. Verse 4, as he talks about the bondage that they feel, he talks of it like an oppressive yoke, a rod, and a staff that's laid on them. That oppression is not just bad. It makes people that are oppressed feel subhuman. These are the words that he uses. I want you to know that just because you're a Christian, just because you love God, just because you're one of God's people, it doesn't mean that you will be exempt from bad times. They fall on all of us, and the Bible is very clear and honest about the hard times that we feel. And somebody saying, just look at the bright side of the things, is very bad advice because sometimes there is no bright side. It doesn't matter if you have four kids and you lose one, somebody that comes and says, well, I know that one died, but at least you have three left. That's, that's bad advice. That's not helpful. We live in a world that's fallen, that's broken, and there is no just bright side of things. So the question is, where do we really go to for hope? 
if we look for it in the wrong place, it's only going to lead us further down. And it's against this backdrop that we see the beauty of Advent and the beauty of Christmas. And here's the one thing that I want you to leave with. If you're looking for hope, use your ears, not your eyes. If you're looking for hope, use your ears, not your eyes. That's a pithy way of saying that as God's people, we walk by faith and not by sight. That our hope comes not from what we see, but what we can hear. Allow me to make an illustration that will help to clarify this. In uh, June of 2010, um, after what I would suppose were many a lost iPhone, um, Apple came out with this app called Find My iPhone. And you know what this app did? For people that had misplaced their iPhone, for people that had went to the refrigerator to get a glass of water, but they were tired and they left their phone in there and looked around the house and felt like they couldn't find it. Not that I've done that, but just say somebody has done that. (laughs) They created this app, and what this app did was even if your phone was on silent, if you logged in on the app and said, find my iPhone, it would ding. You would hear this ding, and what it would do Was it everybody that couldn't find their iPhone with their eyes? They could hear. And they could realize that even if I don't have it in my hands, I know that it's close by. I know that it's coming. And sometimes it's actually more helpful if I'm trying to find my iPhone and I don't know where it is and it starts to ding that I close my eyes because I drown out everything that's going on around me and it helps me to find it quicker. This is the message that Isaiah gives to these people. Don't look for hope based on what you can see. If you trust your eyes, you're only going to find more reasons to be depressed. But this God has actually spoken. And he wants you to hear what he says. And he wants you to put faith, not in what you see, not in what you can solve, but in what he says. And here's the beauty of it. Here's the beauty of if you and I really walk by faith and not by sight, if we use our ears more than we use our eyes, it helps us not to miss out on what God is doing because the people that God chooses and the methods that God uses never pass the eye test. There's nobody that looks head on on the methods that he'll do or the people that he'll choose and say, if I was in the same spot, that's exactly what I would do. No, everybody that God chooses, all that he does, we need faith first to trust that, God, that doesn't look like the best way to do things, that doesn't look like the right way, but if you say it, I'm going to trust this. And so here's where Isaiah 9 comes in. Look here at 9 verse 1, it says this. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor by the way of the sea to the land east of the Jordan and to Galilee of the nations. We don't know where those places are, so it doesn't make sense to us. But what he's trying to bring out is this, that one, hope comes in unlikely places. 
Zebulun and Naphtali were at the north of their nation. And so what that meant was that when Assyria came down to conquer for them, this was the first part to be crushed. It was a ravaged and ransacked town that was filled, or what they deemed, polluted by Gentiles. This was the forgotten land. Nobody wanted to go there. It seemed like a place of total destruction that you would go to if you wanted to be depressed. And what God says is that, yo, hope's going to come from this place. That if you and I trust our eyes, then we miss the unlikely places that God brings hope. But if we trust our ears, what he's trying to say here is that his hope comes in very unlikely places. It's a complete hope, too. Look here at verse 2. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. And I want you to hear this. This is more than there's a light at the end of the tunnel, so keep walking. Read on, and it says this. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. What that means is that you and I don't find hope. Hope has found us. Hope comes in the most unlikely places. Think about your own life. Where was it that you met God? Where did you meet Jesus? Where did he really become real to you? It probably wasn't in a very likely place. For me, it was in Nigeria, face down in the dirt, with guns pointed to the back of me and my family's heads four days before we were set to come back to the States 15 years ago. And I prayed, Lord, I have done everything. I've wasted my life. And I know that you're gracious and a kind God. I've learned that in church. I've pieced it together somewhere. I pray that you would save me. And it comes seeing a God deliver us out of that. We talked about a brother last week that joined the church who, um, after experiencing such an embarrassing time in school, college, filled with shame, tried to run away from shame and hide out in the place where, I guess when you're in college, nobody goes to the library, and found himself in the Bible section of the library, picked the Bible up off the shelf, met Jesus. I have a brother who was addicted to drugs for a number of years and got into some trouble. And when he was running away from the trouble that he was in and hiding in a ditch, found his way close to a church, looked up at a sign that talked about God's love, called my dad. My dad picked him up and he went to rehab and his life started to turn around there. God meets us in unlikely places. His hope comes in unlikely places. And look at, look, just as he goes on, it's not just that God's hope comes and it makes us not frown anymore. Look here at verse 3, right? You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time. And they rejoice when dividing spoils that this is more than just not being sad. It's saying that this hope is meant to give us present joy even if we don't actually taste of the fruits yet. It's like Christmas morning, opening up that present that you want and even though you haven't 
enjoyed it yet, just the sight of the box and you know that it's yours, puts a smile on your face. This is, what it, this is the, the hope that comes to us. It's a complete hope. Verse 4 talks all about the oppression being broken, that this hope that comes into the world through Christ is going to set everything right as it should be. And then verse 5 talks about complete victory. Verse 5 says, It's for every trampling boot of battle and the bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. All that that is is back in these days when people conquered their foes. They took their things of war and they said, you're not going to need these anymore. And they burned them so that even if they got the idea of trying to start an insurrection, they couldn't because they just didn't have the materials. And this is the type of deliverance and freedom that he's saying has come into the world and the announcement is coming from an unlikely place. This is the hope that's found us. And this isn't even the best news that exists in this passage. That if you and I trust our ears more than we trust our eyes when we try to look for this hope, we'll not just find that this hope comes in an unlikely place, but it comes in an unlikely package. This verse hinges on the beginning of verse 6. You would think that this type of complete salvation, this complete hope would come through some strong warrior that came into the world. But look here at verse 6. It says this, for a child will be born for us. A son will be given to us. You didn't find hope. Hope found you. And it didn't come the way that anybody would have thought that it came. This hope that's going to set the world right came in the package, the humble package of a son and a baby that was given for us. But it wasn't just any baby. Jesus, God in the flesh that came in the world, look at what he can bear, right? And the government will be on his shoulders. This was good news to a people here. Do you know why? Because God let them have a bad ruler. Ahaz, the guy that was king, was a terrible ruler. And God had allowed it uh, like uh, in order to whet their appetite for somebody that was going to come and set things right. That's the wisdom of God. He can even give us what it is that we don't want so that we want all the more what he will give us. But that's not the best part of the passage. Here's the best part, as it talks about what he's going to be like. And let's just take some time to meditate on this good news. It gives us these names for him. He will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful Counselor. This doesn't stir anything in our souls, I think, because we misunderstand the way that the Bible will use counselor. When we hear that word, we think primarily 
of what somebody does for us, right? I need somebody to help me through my problems. And we don't think of, uh, about what it is that we hope that a good one would possess. Wisdom, right? But it's not just wisdom. It's applicable wisdom that we want. Have you ever been to a bad counselor? I just had an experience like this not too long ago where, um, you know, we went, we sat down, um, sat down twice. And in the first session, um, he probably spent 45 minutes talking, 45 minutes of the hour. And so we're like, all right, yeah, maybe this is just the first one, right? We're just getting warmed up. And we came back the next time. And he talked probably 55 minutes of the hour. And we say, man, it was good stuff. It was all true. But it wasn't relevant right to where I was. As the Bible talks about Jesus and what it is that he will be, it's going to say he is a wonderful counselor. Counselor, not just in the sense of somebody to sit me down on the couch and to help me through life's woes, but somebody that knows everything. So when the Bible is going to use this word, it's going to say, who has been God's counselor? Who actually sat God down and said, hey, God, um, let me help you to get this. Uh, this is what you need to know in order to get where he comes from. And what it's saying is nobody sat down and taught God anything because God knows all. So it's not just that he won't learn. It's that he can't learn. And so he, it says that when this son comes into the world, he's going to be a wonderful counselor or a better translation of this may be this. He'll be an extraordinary strategist, which means this. He always knows what needs to be done. He never gives bad advice. He never makes a mistake, not one. Things are never in the wrong place. He's like a chess master. All the chess pieces are in the place that he would have that works out towards this end. Question, do you feel right now like you're in the wrong place? Do you feel like God has made some mistake in your life and has put you in a place where you don't think that you should be? I want you to know that the God that runs the world, this Savior, is a wonderful counselor. He never makes a mistake. The situation that you're in right now is not a mistake at all. Learn from him. Seek his advice. Do you feel puzzled as to what to do next in your job, in your life, in career, in your relationship with God? That weight doesn't fall on your shoulders. It falls on his and he's willing to, 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 to speak. Mighty God, this speaks to his power, his omnipotence. I want you to hear this. God has never made a plan that he didn't bring about to completion. God is not in the business of halfway doing things. God has never started down the path and hit a roadblock and had to change direction. He's your shield. Follow him. Not just that, but it goes on and says that he's the everlasting father. What this does not mean is that, right, Jesus or God 
was the father at one time, and then in Christ he became the son, and then he's the spirit. So it's not saying that there's one God, and at times he does these three things. It's saying, it's, it's, it's trying to get to the fact that Jesus is love, that all of what he does, that these first things, God's strategy and his power, everything that God does is done in a fatherly way with your best interest in mind. Do you believe that everything that has gone on in your life so far has happened up to this point? God has done it or allowed it with your best interest in mind. I appreciate that. He's an everlasting father. All earthly fathers will leave at some point through death, through divorce. Maybe they're just distant. But this is an everlasting father that never leaves, that never goes anywhere. So what you and I do, what we long to do, what we spend our time doing is not trying to take care of ourselves, but just trying to make sure that we remain in his good graces, in his house. If you're at a place right now where you feel like, but I've wandered so far from God, I don't know if he would take me back. I want you to know that scripture speaks that this son that has come into the world He'll display this everlasting father where regardless of how far that you've gone, the template of how God receives those of us back that turn from our sin and turn towards him can be found in Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son when he's reminded of the goodness of God in an unlikely place. He goes home not having to convince his father to take him back, but he goes home and finds his father already outside waiting. And that implies not that the father woke up one day and said, hey, I think that today's the day that he's going to come back. That implies that every day from the time that the son left, that the father was waiting there. And lastly, it says here that he's the prince of peace. And I love this one the most because peace in the Bible is more than just a ceasefire. It's more than just not fighting. We're used to being in a world where we're constantly fighting, uh, where we define peace as, no, no, I just don't have beef with them. Um, that's not what the Bible talks about as peace. Here's what peace is. Peace is things being just as they should. In Revelation, the Bible paints a great picture of peace. And do you know what the peace is? It says that when Christ comes back and sets things up, uh, that the lion is actually going to lay down with the lamb. It's not just saying that folks are going to be tame, but it's a picture of animals, one that should devour the other, has nothing inside of him that wants to tear apart that lamb. And do you know how the Prince of Peace brought that for all of us? Do you know how he'll bring that this peace that he brings is not just peace between us although he works that out but it's this peace between us and God right that trying to search for for hope in in this world um 
it's not just that we have the wrong facts, right? The way that we failed in our search for hope, it's not a fact problem as if we just didn't know where it is that we should look for hope. And now that we know where we should look for hope, that we've trusted in God, it's, it's, it's not a fact problem. It's a faith problem. It's that from the beginning, God has told us where we should look for hope. But do you know what we've done? We've closed our ears and trusted our eyes. We've heard God say it's better to give than to receive. But do you know what we've done? We've closed our ears and we've looked at what we had and we said, I don't want to let that go. We've heard from the beginning God saying it's better to forgive than to hold grudges. And do you know what we've done? We've closed up our ears and said, I think that I should hold the grudge because look, and here are all the things that I'm going to complain about, all the things that they've done. And God has told us from the beginning to listen to him. And if we would, if we would trust our ears more than our eyes, that you and I would have this hope, but we've refused to. And do you know what God did? Instead of condemning a group of people that wouldn't trust his word but would trust our eyes, Hope came to us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, descended in the flesh. So like John 1 says, that this group talks about we saw him with our eyes. We closed our ears to God. We didn't want to have anything to do with him. And we just trusted what we saw. And instead of God just condemning us like he should have, he sent his son right in front of our eyes to do all of the things that he told us that we should do. And what we saw was that the life that he lived, the faithful life that he lived towards God, that should have earned him his blessing, put him on a cross, put him in a tomb. And do you know what we found? That we looked in that tomb and we saw that it was empty and we realized that our hope was found in an unlikely place. It was found on the cross. It was found in that tomb. So verse 7, where where it says here, the dominion will be vast and its prosperity will never end. He will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it, listen, with justice and righteousness, both now and forever. Uh, You cannot have righteousness if you forsake justice. There is no right kingdom that doesn't justly punish the guilty. And what Jesus did on the cross was he fulfilled God's perfect justice to create a righteous kingdom that you and I could be a part of. And the beautiful thing about all this, all of these names, it's not just that he's one of these names some of the time, but he's all of these names all of the time. Do you need wisdom? He's a wonderful counselor. Do you need courage and strength to do what he's called you to do? He's a mighty God that can bless obedience. Do you need the gift of acceptance? Do you need to just know that somebody cares and loves you? He is an everlasting father that even when we stray, he stands waiting each day for us to come home. Are you tired? of the toil and frustration, being at war with people and at war with God, conflicted in your own soul, he's the prince of peace. 
And the beautiful thing about Jesus being all of that, the good news, is that if we trust God's word, if we trust his ears more than we trust our eyes, we find hope in an unlikely place and in an unlikely person. And we see that everything that we've longed for in this world is found in Jesus. Here's the best way I can describe it. Um, Do you remember the first time that you heard about Amazon? Amazon was this place right where Christmas time, it's like, ah, man, my mom wants, like, socks. You know, my wife wants crafts. I got friends that want books. I've got other friends that want electronics. And I'd be so stressed because, man, it's, I've got to go so many places to get all the things that I need. And then somebody told me about Amazon. And Amazon was a place where everything that you need and want is localized in one place. So what this means is that regardless of the questions that you have, regardless of the frustrations or burdens, I know that I just need to go to one place. Jesus, well, Amazon is a picture (laughs) of Jesus, a flawed picture But this is what Isaiah 9 is trying to get at, that if you're looking for hope anywhere, it's all found in one place. Hope has come, and it says here, the dominion will be vast. Um, Translation of this is this, and and, and of an increase of his kingdom, there will be no end. It's just saying it's going to continue to get better and better. It's going to expand and grow and grow. Here's one thing that's so savage about Amazon. Uh, We were in D.C. for our anniversary, and as we walk by, we're on our way to the store and we turn, um, and Amazon had a bookstore, like a brick-and-mortar bookstore. Um, That's ironic because they put all the other bookstores out of business. And then after they put them out of business, they cornered the market on brick-and-mortar bookstores. This is what Jesus does. He puts all other false hopes out of business. Every place else that we would go to get what we want, it's out of business, and he's cornered the market. And the beautiful thing about all of this is that you and I don't have to find this hope. This hope came to us. The passage that we read, Matthew 4, Jesus, as he starts off his earthly mint industry, do you know where he goes? Zebulun and Naphtali, an unlikely place. And he tells us where our hope is found. All those that would repent and turn to the Lord. The kingdom of God is near. This is a prophecy that one day Christ is going to come and he's going to set the world right. And while we wait for that day, the best thing that you and I can do is let him set our worlds right. I think this hope comes, one of the joys that you and I have, uh, is to think of ourselves as blind men looking for hope. That we aren't those that trust our eyes, that trust what we see. We are those that have the freedom of being able to close our eyes, not to ignore what goes on in the world, but just to know that what goes on in the world around us 
has absolutely nothing to do with our joy. You and I can close our world to the world around us as we look for hope and listen and be directed by a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, an everlasting father, the Prince of Peace, who guides us towards joy and guides us towards hope. And I think if we do that, what we'll find is that the envy that we feel when we look in the world for hope is replaced with a contentment because we know that we have all of what we need, not based on what we see, but based on what we hear. That you and I will have strength for a longevity in our work because we don't de determine if we're going to continue to work for the Lord based on the visual results that we see, but based on the fact that we know that we're on the same side of a God who has plans that don't fail. Let's live as blind men, those that don't trust our eyes in pursuit of joy, but those that trust our ears. God's spoken in his word, and he offers his son to all of us. Let's pray. Father, again, we come to you and praise you for the amazing gift of your son. Hope is coming. It's here. I pray that we would be those, uh, Lord, that just wait on you, that listen to you, that fill our minds with thoughts of your greatness and your coming. You will set the world right one day, and we are grateful for that, Father. I pray that in the meantime, we would trust you by submitting our worlds to you, Father. Help us not to consider ourselves wise in our own eyes, uh, but like the psalmist, would you remind us that your word makes us wiser than all of our teachers. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.